We'll start in verse 35 today, 1 Corinthians 15, over halfway through the second to last chapter of the book. What a study it has been. Lots of amazing things we've learned together. Paul has been teaching here the future resurrection of believers in Jesus Christ through this chapter. And what's happening in our passage today is that Paul is anticipating the mocking of some people as he is teaching them about the Christians' future resurrection. And even though these people are likely, he's thinking of mockers, they're not sincere, he's going to answer their questions anyway. He's going to provide a response anyway, and that's what we have before us today. How about I read verses 35 to 37 and then open with a prayer. But someone will say, how are the dead raised? And with what kind of body do they come? You fool, that which you sow does not come to life unless it dies. And that which you sow, you do not sow the body which is to be, but a bare grain, perhaps of wheat or of something else. Lord, keep us from folly. God, keep us from thinking in foolish ways that as we consider not only the here and now, but also the future, that we would take hold of your word and the promises that you've given us, that we would lay claim to these amazing realities that constitute our hope as Christians that will always be with you, and that one day you will totally, completely restore us through a resurrection like our Savior's. God, we ask that this morning as we look into your word, that you would give us great insight, but also that you would change our hearts and cause us to see your gospel more clearly and to think more rightly about the world around us. We ask together that I would not get in the way of your word this morning, but that you would make your word clear to your people today and have us all to grow together in the knowledge of Christ and the love that he imparts in us and through us. We pray it in his name. Amen. Well, here, starting at verse 35, we have some in Corinth who are essentially asking How could it be that the dead would return to a state of living? They're not genuinely asking these questions, as you can see by Paul's response in verse 36, when he calls them fools. These aren't sincere, genuine, authentic questions. These are active arguments against Paul's teaching that there will be a future resurrection of believers. Some potentially had in mind the bodies of those who died in violent ways. I want to be sensitive about this subject because some of you can get queasy, and uh, some of you too perhaps have known people who have died in violent ways. But especially in that day, you can imagine all the different ways that people suffered death. Their bodies many times weren't in one piece. Or even today, as many people are cremated. Have you ever wondered that about the future resurrection? How could it be that this body, which is now confined to an urn, would be resurrected? 
Well, Paul has a pretty strong response here, doesn't he? As people are actively arguing against him with these questions, Paul makes sure that they know that he thinks they're senseless. He says, you fool. This is the type of person who thinks in a godless fashion. Take your mind back to the book of Proverbs. All the times the fool comes up in the book of Proverbs. One commentator has said that you can sum up who the fool is in the book of Proverbs by saying he's the kind of person who lives without taking into account God. That's what a fool is. And Paul here is saying, you fools. These are the questions of fools. But instead of just leaving it there, he does go on to give them an answer. Isn't that amazing and gracious that he would do such a thing? And what a treat it is for us that this is preserved for us. He goes on to say, after calling them fools who speak in such a way, that which you sow does not come to life unless it dies. So Paul is answering the question, how does this work? And his answer, if you want to sum it up, his answer is this, death is an essential part of the transformation process. Death is essential in the Christian's transformation into glory. Death is a necessary step. And he gives them a simple illustration. He is effectively telling them, look, look into your hand. This is an illustration that was effective then, that it was understood then, and it's understood now. For as long as people have planted seeds, this hits home, doesn't it? Paul is saying that our bodies are not unlike seeds and plants in our death and in our resurrection. When you sow a seed, you're looking at this little thing in your hand that's very simple. In fact, to those who are younger, not knowing what it is, it's something that could just be thrown out. What is that? It's nothing. It's just this tiny little thing that's very insignificant. It's unimpressive. It's often a muted color, this brown or black or white. It's just, what is this? Yet we know from it comes life. And as you understand how seeds and plants work, as children grow up and understand these things, you start to put those little things into the ground in hope. <laughs> because you know that little thing isn't just to be thrown away. It's not just like a piece of gravel or something like that. But there's something in there. God has designed this in such a way that this little insignificant thing can be placed and buried in the ground. And from it will spring life. It is, it is truly amazing, isn't it? Jesus would often use these type of agrarian illustrations and he would talk about the mustard seed. As they would go out on that, that day, they would have all kinds of seeds they would plant and the mustard seed for them, it was the smallest one. But then it would grow and it would sprout forth all these branches and the birds would come and make their nests in it just from this teeny little thing. That is God's power in just the simple things of life, isn't it? And they're only simple because we're used to them, let's face it. If we slow down and break it down, it's an amazing thing. The seed contains something within that God brings forth in transformation. And what Paul is saying here, that like our earthly bodies, with these seeds, the shell must decay and die if there's going to be life coming forth. It has to be placed into the ground. It has to be buried. You have to you know, maybe not have a ceremony for it. That'd be a little strange, but it dies. It dies and it brings forth life. Now, with such a vivid illustration, we have so many tools at our disposal these days that I wanted to share a video of this.
because there are all kinds of uh, time-lapse videos that are out there that are very fun to watch. They're like mesmerizing when you start watching these videos because something that takes weeks will be condensed down to a minute and you can just watch it develop. I, I love these videos. They're very soothing, so hopefully this doesn't like soothe you to slumber. But uh, I, I want you just to see Paul's illustration with your own eyes. So let's play that video of those seeds. Okay, now bonus points if you can tell me what kind of plant that is. That's pretty early on to be able to do it. Now, Jackson, I have very little faith in you. <laughs> but you go ahead. You go ahead and, and give me a guess. Oh, okay. Laura, is that an onion? No, okay. <laughs> That was a watermelon. That was a watermelon seed, okay? Very early on, it's very hard to tell, isn't it? But isn't that just incredible? Those three little brown dots just sitting there in soil. And you know what that watermelon plant looks like as it continues to grow? That thing grows and that takes over a very large amount of space. And it all starts from that tiny, tiny little seed. That is absolutely amazing. And what happens, look down at our text again, when Paul says... In verse 37, that which you sow, you do not sow the body which is to be, but a bare grain. What happens is the seeds lose their identity as seeds through this process, don't they? The seeds don't remain seeds. They become something else. They become plants bearing fruit, we hope. <laughs> bearing much fruit, we hope. And they're transformed into something new. And in the same sense, Paul is saying, our earthly bodies go into the ground and we do not retain the identity of earthly bodies. Now, I'm going to focus later on the continuity of this. We're not going to be turned into something totally different. We don't come back as glorified elephants or panda bears or anything like that. We actually don't even return or be transformed into a different human. You're still you, but you are you differently, aren't you? Just like that seed, it was always part of the watermelon family. But it became something brighter and more glorious. And our lives now reflect this principle. Of course, Paul is, is speaking of the future. Paul is speaking of a physical future resurrection. But did you know that for the Christian, your life actually reflects this in the here and now? Turn back with me to the book of John, the Gospel of John, chapter 12. Jesus used the same illustration as Paul when he was speaking of the hour when he would be glorified. Jesus in John chapter 12, starting at verse 23, talks about seeds dying and transforming. Jesus answered them, it says, John 12, 23, Jesus answered them saying, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. He who loves his life loses it, and he who hates his life in this world will keep it to life eternal. If anyone serves me, he must follow me, and where I am, 
there my servant will be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. So Jesus, of course, went through a death and resurrection himself. The hour was drawing near for him to be glorified. You see, Jesus had a bigger picture of what was happening in his life than just death. He, of course, had in mind his glorification through resurrection. But he also, as he's talking about his impending death and resurrection, he's calling his disciples to lose their lives. He's calling people to die to self in order that they may bear fruit. To die so that they may live. A big theme in Jesus' ministry. To follow Jesus means you first die. Paul also reflected this idea, not just in 1 Corinthians, but in Galatians. Galatians chapter 2, verse 20, maybe some of you, it's your favorite verse. Paul says, I have been crucified with Christ. Is there any way to be crucified without dying? No. Crucifixion was surefire death. I have been crucified with Christ. And it is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. An amazing verse. Isn't that beautiful? But it starts with death. How do you get the Christ life flowing through your life? It starts by dying. Just like a seed has to go in the ground and die in order to bring forth life and fruit. So we must die to self. We must consider ourselves dead to sin. This is what Paul talks about in Romans 6. Romans 6 is the, my first favorite passage from the Bible. I loved Romans 6 as a new believer. Talking about our present identification with the resurrected Jesus Christ. But before Paul talks about we are raised to life, like Jesus has been raised to life. Do you know what he says? We're, we're dead. We've been put to death, just as Jesus was put to death. Our identity is in Christ so completely that right here and now, we, know not just, we don't just bear the life of Christ, we bear the death of Christ. That's the gospel taking root in your heart is that you've been identified with him in his crucifixion. And you're identified with him in his resurrection. And the life that you have is the spirit-wrought power in your heart. The same spirit who raised Christ from the dead is giving life to you. And you are so identified with your Savior that his death is your death and his life is your life and his glory is your glory. You are headed toward a future glorification with Him. You are to inherit a kingdom with Him. You are to reign with Him. Isn't that amazing? In the future, what God is going to do is He's going to marry together the spiritual reality that we know right now with the physical world. We are experiencing something spiritually that will have an effect physically later. We are seeing so much of the spiritual effects of the gospel now, but one day you're going to come out of the grave. One of these days you're going to be transformed totally, and you're going to feel the physical effects of the gospel. You're going to feel the physical effects of being identified with Christ as you are made new. 
There's so many things in life where we're just experiencing in part right now. And the fullness is to come. As plants correspond to their seeds, so also our new bodies will correspond to our identity. We will be transformed, yet we will be ourselves, yet without sin. Total transformation. So Paul gave them a very basic answer to how this is going to happen. How are the dead raised? Well, they die and they're transformed. It's begun now spiritually, and it will happen later physically. And now he's going to focus on the what kind. You see back in verse 35, they also ask the question, with what kind of body do they come? He's going to really focus on that for a long time. We're just going to start the answer to that question today. But they're essentially asking, what will the raised body, what will the resurrected body be like? Well, the basic answer is that God will give new transformed bodies to each individual according to his desire. Look at verse 38. God gives it, so this is, of course, going with the illustration of the seed, gives it a body just as he wished, and to each of the seeds a body of its own. Each of the seeds gets a body, and it's important to recognize this, don't just gloss over it, as God wishes. Thus, even the seeds are dependent on God for their bodies, aren't they? Why did you not have a very good crop last year? Well, the seeds did as God wished. Why did you have a good crop last year? The seeds were doing as God wished. Talked earlier about how he's the Lord of the harvest, not just of souls, but even the physical harvest. Just like with Jesus' body, we will experience a radical change as our seed, the body, goes into the ground and comes forth with newness of life. We will experience radical differences, yet we'll still be human. Paul says here, again, continuing with this plant illustration, you don't plant the body that will be, you plant the seed. You don't plant a corn cob and expect corn stalks to raise up. And in the same sense, you also don't plant a corn kernel and expect pumpkins, do you? There's continuity and there's transformation and everything happens in its order. And just like with Jesus' body and Jesus' resurrection, we will still be us. Now this is really, just really one of those amazing things that we don't think about enough. When Jesus was resurrected, he retained those prints in his hand, in his side that Thomas felt. That didn't get erased in the resurrection. Now, there are lots of things you can try to deduce from that, and a lot of those things you probably shouldn't try to deduce. <laughs> but at a basic level, we can understand this. When Jesus was resurrected, he was still Jesus. And what he went through was still having some sort of effect on who he was. When you're resurrected, you will still be you. You will still have your personality. It's just going to be way cleaned up, finally. <laughs> God's finally just going to clean it up for you. And you'll be without sin, but you will be you. We're, we're going to retain our individual characteristics and traits in a totally restored fashion. 
And Paul gives several adjectives here in this uh, chapter. Again, we're going to get into these more next week. But you can kind of run your eyes over these verses, especially verse 42 and following. Paul talks about how our new bodies are going to be incorruptible. They're going to be glorious, powerful. They'll be spiritual. And Paul, to set up these adjectives, Paul gives several illustrations as a foundation for these adjectives. Don't get all sidetracked by the screensaver there. Uh, something came loose. Just don't, you're not in Tahiti or wherever that is, okay? You're here. You're still in Payson. And it's still snowing. You're not on the beach. See, this is a great illustration. We're going somewhere like this, but now we're here, okay? <laughs> I'll take that as the Lord's illustration for you today. Well, he gives several illustrations as a foundation. And what Paul is doing, and this is really important, I want you to get this, so if you're taking notes, write this part down. Why is Paul giving all these illustrations? He is illustrating the contrast between earthly bodies and heavenly bodies. Between earthly bodies and heavenly bodies. Okay? The mockers that are asking these questions of Paul, they weren't able to comprehend this body, or they just simply refused to comprehend this idea of a heavenly body, because... When you're just focused on the here and now, like so many of the philosophers of their day were, so many in the Greek culture were just focused on the here and now and our earthly bodies, and some of them, the Gnostics, they would say, uh, all material is bad, so this idea of God taking our material bodies and glorifying them, well, that, that's not even something God does, because all material is bad. That's kind of the attitude behind these questions. Well, what Paul is doing is he's giving an account for contrast. Our new bodies are going to be different than these, yet they will still be material bodies. And he says you don't have to imagine different kinds of bodies as though they don't exist now. There are all kinds of current examples that you can look at that show there is diversity. Paul says contrast exists now in several places, and he gives all these illustrations. He says, look at the... Look at the flesh of creatures. Verse 39. All flesh is not the same flesh, but there is one flesh of men and another flesh of beasts and another flesh of birds and another of fish. Paul says there are four fleshes of earthly creatures. This is a pretty common way of dividing up the creatures on the face of the earth with these four different categories with humans and beasts and birds and fish. And what Paul is saying here is that humans aren't animals. Mammals aren't birds. Birds aren't fish. There are different kinds of animals. And if you go back to Genesis 1, you know this is how God created things, isn't it? This is how God created living things, according to their kind, over and over again. This is a, just one, another one of those places you can turn to and say you can't put evolution in the Bible. It just doesn't fit. Paul here is not allowing for Darwinism, is he? There's a flesh of humans, and that's distinct from the flesh of animals. And Paul is saying that the human and animal distinction is similar to the heavenly body and earthly body distinction. Just as there's all these different kinds of flesh among living things, there's a different type of flesh waiting for us in our glorified state. He gives yet another illustration. Look at verse 40. There are also heavenly bodies and earthly bodies. 
But the glory of the heavenly is one and the glory of the earthly is another. There are a variety of things Paul could be pointing at when he says bodies here. We don't know exactly what he had in mind. Potentially, he's just setting up the next verse that talks about the sun and the moon and the stars. He could also be speaking of the different cosmic bodies that exist, that Venus isn't Earth, is it? You can inhabit one and not the other. Space contains all sorts of interesting cosmic bodies that are different than what we have here on Earth. I did just a really brief amount of Google research so I could sound like an astronomer today to you. But uh, it's an amazing thing. You know how we get space rocks? We go get them from different you know, planets and moons and stuff. And then they also fall here, meteorites and whatnot. Forty different types of minerals we've discovered that exist in space that we don't have here. Isn't that amazing? Forty different types of minerals that don't exist here. So... Heavenly bodies are not earthly bodies. There's a difference. He could also be speaking of angels and humans. Angels, of course, are immaterial spirit beings. They exist in the heavenly realm. And those are different than us, aren't they? Angels are different than human beings. Human beings don't become angels, so don't have that in your mind. They're different creatures. God created angels and he created humans. They're distinct creatures. And then he goes on in verse 41 and talks about the three glories of astronomical lights. Verse 41, he says, There's one glory of the sun and another glory of the moon and another glory of the stars. For star differs from star in glory. These three heavenly lights, you could say, sun and moon and stars, they differ from each other in their intensity. You can stare at a star. You can stare at the moon. Some of you know by experience, you shouldn't stare at the sun, right? There's a difference in brightness. There's a difference in prominence. And that last part of the verse, I think, is really important. He expands, and this is really a a countless contrast. You know, he was talking about four types of fleshes uh, of living things. He was talking about two types of bodies, cosmic bodies, three types of heavenly lights. Well, now when he talks about stars, this is countless. He says there are differences from star to star when it comes to their glory, their brightness, their prominence, they differ. And I say this is countless because, did you know, again, boopity boop boop, Google research scientists coming at you, in our galaxy, there are estimated between 100 and 400 billion stars. In our galaxy, hundreds of billions of stars You know what that means to me? Countless. (laughs) That means countless. If your estimate is between 100 billion and 400 billion, just say countless. Countless stars. And what's interesting too about stars is they don't just differ in brightness. Did you know stars differ in color? When you get down to it, they all have a unique color about them that they radiate, that they put off. And the key common factor in all of these illustrations, whether he's talking about living creatures, whether he's talking about cosmic bodies, heavenly lights, all the different stars, it's that there is distinction within creation. There's contrast right now. And in that same way, our heavenly body, our resurrected body will be different than the one you have now. The resurrected body will stand in contrast to this failing, weak, mortal earthly body. Look at what he says in verse 42. 
He ties it all together saying, so also is the resurrection of the dead. So also is the resurrection of the dead. The kind of body we will be given will differ from the body we have now. Look down at verse 49 with me. We'll look at this next week. But in verse 49, it's a straightforward statement. Just as we have borne the image of the earthy, we will also bear the image of the heavenly. This is what Paul's talking about through all these illustrations. We will transcend from being mortal to being immortal, from being not very glorious to being glorious. Yet we will not cease to be human beings. And that's just amazing. We will be glorified creatures of God. Now, I do have to, of course, make a note here to say you need to beware of some errant interpretations of this passage that are used to push false doctrine among people. This is very uh, pertinent for you living here in Utah. You'll hear verse 41 taught in a variety of ways that are not biblical. Let me just ask you, and you can just answer quietly to yourself, Will some people be more glorious than others in the resurrected state? Well, Paul's not talking about that here, is he? Also, the answer is no. (laughs) He's not talking about three different kingdoms that you can ascend to with three different levels of glory in the afterlife. That is not in Paul's view at all. In fact, why look at verse 41 and limit it to three kingdoms For star differs from star in glory, that means there would be 100 to 400 billion kingdoms, countless kingdoms. He also uses four fleshes of living creatures, two cosmic bodies. To make this out to say there are three kingdoms is really, really bad Bible interpretation. Paul is describing the resurrected body as a fact for all who are in Christ. Paul is talking about immortality for all who are in Christ. Paul's talking about a new transformed body for every single person who is in Christ by faith. He is not speaking of some sort of works-based, earn-your-glory system. So I want us to close today by just giving you a big overview of what we believe about human beings. This is uh, called anthropology, this is the area of study, anthropology. What is our biblical anthropology? Well, we can look at our passage today and say that the resurrected state is the ultimate beautiful destiny of man, isn't it? The resurrected state is the ultimate beautiful destiny of those who are in Christ. Now, there will be some who will be raised to everlasting torment. We get that in the Old Testament. It's expounded by Jesus in John chapter 5. We see it, of course, at the end of Revelation. All people will be raised, yet there will be some to everlasting life and others to death and to judgment. Yet for the Christian, the resurrected state is the ultimate beautiful destiny of man. Now, let me back up from there and just give you some key points. You can jot these down as just big ideas. God made us as both creatures and persons. Creatures and persons. Now, this is fascinating. Have you ever thought about how you're a creature? Steve's not in here. He was here earlier. Where'd Steve go? Steve's fond of saying that he's a worm. 
<laughs> He'll call himself a worm. And there's biblical warrant for that. We are but worms. We're creatures. What does that mean? It means we're totally, absolutely dependent on God for everything. We are not creators of ourselves. We are dependent on our creator for life and breath and everything that we have. We are creatures who are absolutely dependent on God. Yet, we're different than worms, right? Depends on what day I ask you probably. But we are not worms in the sense that we're people or persons, you could say. We each have individual identities. We're able to exercise a will to communicate. Isn't that astounding? We can pray to God. We can have relationship with God and with each other. And we're distinct from other creatures in that sense. So you can say that we are creatures in the sense that I am totally dependent on God as I'm up here speaking to you. But I'm a person in that I'm choosing what I say, aren't I? And so we are both creatures and persons. It's an amazing truth shrouded in all kinds of mystery. And we are a little lower than the angels, Scripture says. We're not as glorious as the angels. As Tyler mentioned earlier from Hebrews 2, we're a little lower. So you can kind of get an idea on the, on the ranking system here where you are. You know, God, of course, is number one. Angels are there and you're, you're falling down. You're below the angels. And Jesus, while he was on earth, he was made a little lower than the angels because he was truly man, wasn't he? However, even though we're lower than the angels, we possess something the angels don't, the image of God. Human beings, though lower than the angels right now in glory, we possess God's image. We are able to exercise will. We are able to have emotion and relationship. We're able to be redeemed, restored with God because we're born in the image of God. And we reflect God in our relationship, even our relationship to Him. We reflect God in our relationship to each other. We reflect God in our relationship to nature. We've talked about this in 1 Corinthians 15. Man was created with a mission. God gave the mission to Adam to subdue the earth. And as we do that still today, through all the curses that come with the fall, we are exercising the image of God. We're displaying the image of God. We're showing what makes us different than all other creatures. Yet because of the fall, we're experiencing all these things with devastation intermixed, aren't we? Our relationship with God, our relationship with each other, our relationship to nature. Through the fall has come death and devastation. Just earlier this week, I was looking at Nebo out there and Beautiful, white, covered in snow. The sun was out, shining. But I had a headache. <laughs> and it's just prettier when you feel better. It's a little uglier when you have a headache looking at it. Just even little things like that, we experience our reality, exercising the image of God with devastation intermixed. Yet... As redeemed Christians, we are experiencing the first fruits of renewal right now, aren't we? In our relationship with God, in our relationship with one another, and yes, even our relationship to nature, we are 
being renewed day by day. Things are beginning to be restored in us and through us as creatures and persons. We can understand that in our relationship to God. What did you have before Christ? Nothing. You had no relationship with God. And yet, what do you have now? He's living inside of you, believer. He's within, Christian. And it's being renewed. This relationship's being renewed. Our relationships to one another, though they're not perfect like they will be in the resurrected state, here we experience the first fruits of renewal, don't we? What is Christian fellowship? But the, the first taste of relationship renewal on earth, right? How about nature? The way that we view the earth as stewards who want to honor God with our resources. What is that but renewal? Exercising the image of God with the first fruits of renewal. And then what lies before us? What have we been studying this morning? This resurrection, where it's not just the first fruits or the first taste of renewal, but it's total and complete restoration. And all that, that devastation that lingers right now because of the fall will be stripped away. And your relationship with God will be absolutely perfect realized not just in, in spiritual form or in positional form, but face-to-face -face physical form. Your relationship with one another will be totally, utterly, thoroughly renewed, restored. There won't be any more sin that comes between you and someone else. No more words of pride. No more gossip. No more backbiting. All gone. No more strife from person to person. And nature itself will all be restored as Christ comes and establishes his kingdom, and there's perfect subduing of all living things under his rule. And you then transition into the eternal state where death won't have any more effect on you at all. That is awesome. That's an awesome thought. We are headed toward a perfect glorification through death and resurrection. Let me share with you a longer quote from Anthony Hokema. He's got a great book on anthropology that I, it's my top recommendation. But listen to what he says here. In order to see the Christian view of man in its total brilliance, therefore, we must not just go back to man as he was originally created. Rather, we must go forward to man as he, some, as he will someday be. We must see man in the light of his final destiny. For Christ, through his redemptive work, brings us higher than Adam was before the fall. Adam could still lose his sinlessness and blessedness. Listen to this. But the glorified saints will no longer be able to do so. Adam was able not to sin and die. But the saints in glory will not be able to sin and die. This unlosable perfection is what man is destined for, and nothing less. Ah, that's good. It's just like a soothing balm, isn't it? We will always be both creatures and persons. We will always be human beings. We will always be who we are individually. But one day, it will all be in perfect harmony in the presence of God. What a day of rejoicing that will be when we all see Jesus. We'll sing and shout the victory. God, we thank you for the victory that we have in Christ, for the bright future that we share with him. 
as you will cause us to be glorified, to be totally restored, to be placed higher than Adam in this state of unlosable perfection. Give us that vision as we live life here and now, spending time with one another, reaching out to people, slowing down, looking at people, speaking to them, but more importantly, listening to them, loving them the way Jesus has loved us. Give us that eternal vision through it all that we would live in light of our future glory. And we ask for this in Jesus' name. Amen.